Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson and I'm an economist here at Cambridge Judge Business School. In this series, specialists from the Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on inequality. Since the early 1980s, there's been widening income and wealth inequality in many industrialised countries. Why has this happened? Is it a problem? And if it is, what should we do about it? Joining me in today's session are Jennifer Howard Grenville, Diageo Professor in Organisation Studies at Cambridge Judge Business School, Belinda Bell, Director of the Cambridge Social Ventures Programme at the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation, and Dr Kamal Munir, Reader in Strategy and Policy at Cambridge Judge Business School and the Race and Inclusion Champion at the University of Cambridge. Thank you for joining me. Today's topic is inequality. Inequality has many dimensions and many alternative ways of measurement. But today we are going to focus on some of the economic aspects of inequality, such as inequality in income, inequality in wealth, and inequality in opportunities. We are narrowing our discussion to focus on inequality in the industrialised countries, where income and wealth inequalities accelerated since the early 1980s. Of course, another important question is how global inequality has been influenced by the growth of newly industrializing countries, such as China and India, which have, been lifted, which have lifted billions out of poverty. But that important topic will be considered at a future podcast. For some, the growth of income and inequality in the industrialized countries is the natural outcome of the operation of market forces and economic growth. I have to say this is not an argument I find convincing. Inequality is shaped by public policy and the forces of deregulation and capitalism unleashed since the early 1980s have created widening divide in many advanced countries, particularly, I should say, the United States. Also, some argue that inequality is not a big problem. It is argued inequality creates incentives and benefits of economic growth, which trickle down to the poor groups in society. Again, this is not an argument I find convincing. The argument seems to be that the rich are incentivized by higher incomes, whereas the poor are incentivized by lower incomes. And as for trickle-down, much of the evidence suggests that income and wealth does not trickle very far, or it may even trickle up. So really to kick off, are the industrialising countries becoming more unequal, and if so, why? Kamal, would you like to kick off on this one? Sure. Uh, Michael, I don't think uh, there is any doubt that uh, the level of inequality overall is increasing. Uh, across countries and uh, within countries and especially in OECD countries. Of course, it varies um, when we look across OECD countries. So the level of inequality might be rising very slowly in Scandinavia uh, and rising very fast in, in America. In fact, uh, now there's a joke right, where they say that if you want to live the American dream, you should move to Denmark uh, because it's not going to happen in, in America and that speaks to uh, lower class mobility. Um, there's so that's, been a that's equality of opportunities. What about equality of income and wealth? Sure. And there's a, there's a, there was a report that Oxfam released uh, this year that has been doing the rounds in which they essentially point out how all the wealth that was created in 2017, 80% of that went to 1% of the people and the bottom 50% did not get anything. Now that is not atypical, that is actually fairly typical uh, of what we have been seeing um, over the last many years. We thought that things might change. Uh, after the financial crisis, but obviously they haven't. Even when it comes to you know CEO salaries versus uh, worker remuneration, whichever way we look at it, I think you know it has actually been worsening. Jennifer, so 
you know, the, there's an interesting question of, uh, is this uh, just an inevitable outcome? Is this part of capitalism that drives increasing income inequality? And I think the what Kamal was pointing out about the um, the rising gap between, for example, CEO pay and that of line level workers is something that we need to pay attention to and take take seriously. And part of that is driven by short-termism. It's driven by the market rewarding, um, you know, the, the stock market rewards um, for publicly held companies and the assertion that there's a great deal of risk that gets taken on by people in senior management positions and therefore remuneration. Re <laughs> there's a great deal of risk that get taken on by the senior management and therefore their pay has to match that risk. But time and again, it's issues like um, you know, CEOs uh, failing to enable their company to perform at a high level or worse still getting into some sort of scandal and still being paid handsomely. Those are the kinds of things that drive the sense that the deck is not stacked in a way that favors those at the bottom. So I think there's both the actual structural issues of capitalism and the market system that that drive this increase in income inequality. And then there's also the fact that we, as a society, in some ways tolerate it and, um, and reinforce it. Linda? I suppose I'd only add to that, that we should probably be explicit that inequality um, is bad for everybody. It's not just bad for people at the top, it's bad for people at the, sorry, not just for people at the bottom, but people at the top as well. So we've got much more kind of awareness now that it, it's a bad thing all round. And yet um, the structures of power, as Kamal said, uh, since the, the global financial crisis, you know, essentially the kind of normative approach has, has continued. And uh, so we have to be clear that the, the structures of power that control the way these things work are not doing anybody any favours. And so, um, so, I mean, for my purposes, there's the, the, the question about whether or not an industrialized countries are becoming more unequal is, you know, that's that's agreed, you know. Um, so we, I'm moving somewhat on to, is that a problem? And uh, and what we what we should probably think about that. But but what what is the problem? I mean, I mean, one argument is this is successful capitalism. Getting back to the CEO issue, CEOs are in short supply, so they're you know they're paid because they're very successful, very talented people and that capitalism requires inequality to create incentives. So, so, so where is the problem, particularly if inequality is associated with higher economic growth? Um, uh, first of all, um, inequality is not always associated with higher economic growth. And um, where it is, you know, it's particularly problematic. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we could talk about emerging markets, but perhaps uh, another time, let's focus on the OECD for the time being. But let me point out a couple of problems, you know, that inequality raises, as Belinda said, for everyone. I mean, first of all, it produces a very small number of people who have most of the country's wealth, and a large number of people who are not getting any share of that. Now that poses serious problems for democracy or the institution of democracy because you know the interests of a few are not aligned with the interests of the many, okay? and uh, and that is that is one. Um, secondly, the wealthy come to control policy agendas through donations to political parties, uh, through other kinds of perks that they can offer to politicians, and so on and so forth. Um, thirdly, um, it leads to a dysfunctional society. So, for example. You know, the seminal work that was done by Wilkinson and Pickett you know, clearly showed that there was a very strong correlation between the levels of inequality in a country and the levels of social and health problems. Okay. And regardless of the overall, the absolute wealth 
of the country. So the inequality feeds into those problems. The rich have to live in gated communities, the, it breeds mistrust in society, overall it produces a dysfunctional society. So there are serious problems with the rise of inequality. And I think that um, what Kamal, Kamal is pointing out is that it's not simply um, you know, driven by capitalism and driven by markets and driven by economic forces and this assertion that inequality actually drives those at the bottom to expend more energy, to have more ambition and to reach the top is completely false when we look at actually the social dynamics of what is supposedly meritocracy. And we know full well that this has also been um, increasing the tendency for those at the top or those who have higher incomes, um, who have a social standing and who are brought up in a family in which certain expectations are implicit will have greater access to education, they'll probably have greater access to high paying jobs. And so actually the driving wedge isn't simply an economic driver, it's also a social and cultural driver um, that works against the, the sort of rhetoric of, of meritocracy. Of course there's always some great success stories of people who um, start from nothing who might have been the first in their family to go to university and they can attain you know influence and power and and um, you know build businesses on all of these kind of success stories so th that still does happen we need not forget that but the deck is stacked against that kind of activity and I think that is important to point out that that it's um, that the immediate impact of inequality are not good for everyone, but that it tends to feed on itself in a vicious cycle kind of way. Okay, I'd just like to pick up on a point that Jennifer uh, made about, um, you know, sort of how we allow these things uh, to happen and the power differentials and so on. Because, and this also speaks to a question you asked us earlier, which is why is it uh, increasing? And um, if you ask, you know, somebody like, Piketty, for example, he'd say it happens because you know the rate of uh, returns on wealth are higher than the rate of return, the well the the economic growth rate, and uh, if you ask uh, Joseph Stiglitz, you know he would sort of speak to what some of the points uh, you guys were making, which is that it's essentially rent seeking. It's not you know a level playing field. So the more powerful you get, the more powerful you get. And, uh, but there is another element and many of us at the business school, for example, have been looking uh, at that, which is what allows these things to actually, you know, go unquestioned in society. So what allows CEOs to get away with paying themselves, you know, 300 times more than the line worker? What allows um, men to be paid more than women for the same job for decades, right? Uh, what allows, um, for example, you know, uh, white people to dominate all important uh, decision-making bodies, whether at the country level or the organizational level, you know, than BMEs? Uh, what allows Trump to go in and uh, slash corporate tax rates? So, you know, the discourses, the belief systems, uh, the institutions that uh, that underpin this 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 uh, you know sort of social system which allows people to get away with that, I think is also important. So, so the answer is the system, or the answer is somewhat more complex than that? No, so the answer is certainly complex, but the answer also is that, you know, I mean, these things have become institutionalized. Meritocracy that Jennifer uh, mentioned, for example, the institution of meritocracy becomes institutionalized, which means that people take it for granted 
when people say that, no, we only admit people on merit, I mean, they don't go beyond that. They just believe that. Okay, can I just push you on a little bit on that? I mean, those institutions probably reduced inequality somewhat after the Second World War. In the, as you say, the OECD countries we're looking at, it tended, to, well, most, many metrics, okay, many range of metrics, it tended to decrease up until the 1970s. Then the 70s, early 80s, the thing seems to have gone the other way. So what, what was the institutional change that, that so, happened there? Well, I mean, so after... after Are we talking about a new form of capitalism, deregulation, the, absolutely. the reduction of the role of the state? I think, I mean, we all know that after 1989, the world changed in a pretty uh, significant way. And, changed uh, in 79 in this country, but that's another Yes, yeah, yeah. that's right, 79 or, you know, 89, because, you know, then the Americans also yeah. joined in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in in a big way. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I mean, all the champions of free market were vindicated or felt vindicated in uh, in many ways. And they were able to push through these reforms, um, in, in, you know, in ways that they found very difficult to uh, prior to 1979 or 1960s uh, and 70s. So in that sense, yes, I mean, what we have seen is, you know, neoliberalism, which means privatization, which means, you know, sort of uh, free trade. And uh, that has, I think, uh, contributed enormously to the uh, to uh, inequality. Linda, well, I was just thinking, listening to Kamal speak there about the importance of kind of an understanding of kind of historicity, if you will, in in the discourse we're talking about here. Now, I'm not an economist, um, but I know the power of kind of the, the Kuznets curve, like this idea that if as people got richer, then inequality would uh, would would, would um, lower, uh, and yet that was not really ever what what he proposed uh, in in truth, in terms of the detail of it. Um, and of course, it was specific to a time and a place. And so I think this this conversation about discourse and the power of discourse is, is super important because it seems to me that. Um, the, the discipline of economics and many of our capitalist power structures, sort of, it's paradoxically, uh, you know, that, well, they're based on this idea of sort of homo economicus, which nobody believed in ever or believes in now, and yet there's these... these um, Some uh, economists still believe in it. Oh, do they really? Yeah. I didn't realise they seriously did. Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Wow. Um, they need to get so out more. But. They do need to get out more and speak to the real people because um, because it goes to show then the power of these sorts of images. So you see the Kuznets curve or you see the supply demand cross and those things uh, really can burrow into people's brains and uh, because they're very simple to, for one to remember. Um, and I recently um, uh, was uh, talking with um, Kate Rayworth who wrote Donut Economics, this kind of uh, extraordinary economics book insofar as it got, you know, pub public popular opinion. Um, and I think so much of this, as I'm not an economist, makes sense to me because in mainstream economics, in the way that we structure these things, in the mainstream discourses, it just completely ignores, you know, the environment, relationships, love, civil society, all the things that actually as human beings we live with in the world. And so it feels like we need to um, to, to move the discussion forward. We need to sort of go backwards to, to ourselves as human beings and stop thinking that our economic activities, which drive inequality, are somehow removed from uh, all the other bits of life. I just, just an aside, I was at a conference many years ago and Deirdre McCloskey was asked um, how economists deal with love. Yes. And, and she said, love is in the error term. So, um, <laughs> which I thought was a song, but anyway. Um, just just moving, moving the debate on, if we, if, if we think about um, the issue of inequality, and I, I agree with the, 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 both the economic and social costs and the democratic costs of inequality are significant and potentially significant. What do we think governments or businesses or both together should do? So I can uh, 
to put some ideas there, Michael. So my, my, my work is largely in working with social enterprises and social entrepreneurs, so people who are creating businesses that are based on trying to create social impact first and, and, and private profit, either not at all or private profit later. And um, the government actually over the last decade has done quite a lot to support social enterprises, both in kind of creating new legal structures and uh, facilitating tax reliefs and so forth, but um, I think there's a lot more that uh, that we need to do in, to, in again about the discourse of what we expect our businesses to do. And the government does have a lot of power uh, in the way that our society is structured in how, particularly, kind of you know, at startup SME businesses are able to operate. Different kettle of fish when we're talking about the large multinationals, um, but. I think there are things that only comes from the starting place of accepting that people are not operating on a level playing field. So, you know, on the basics of access to finance or whatever, the playing field is not level. And so we need to accept that and then we can move forward. So I think there's a bunch of things the government can do around supporting business that operates in different ways. And then I suppose the second thing I'd say is around the kind of the tax regime. I think there are some really interesting experiments going on around the world in citizens' income, universal basic income or whatever. I think there are kind of uh, dramatic things we could try to do differently. Kamal. Um, so I think, I mean, the government certainly has a central role to play in this. And it has in many places in the world um, actually made the situation a lot better by bringing in regulation, uh, especially when it comes to equality of opportunity. Um, but the government, I mean, I think we also need to keep in mind that, um, you know, has been captured uh, by a market ideology. Um, it has, you know, I mean... To, to varying degrees, though. I mean, there to are, varying there are, there degrees, are, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Certainly, to varying degrees. But that does seem to be the trend. Um, it, it, it The trend seems to be that, you know, they've become hostage to the whims of global capital because, I mean, firms can essentially hold them hostage. Right? Uh, and tell them decrease tax rates, otherwise we are moving. Now, obviously, it is not the only thing. Tax rates are not the only thing you know that bring um, a particular firm to a particular country. So there is a, there's a bit of bluffing going on uh, too. But that is certainly a tool that they have at their disposal, where they can say, okay, you know, otherwise we close down our plant. You know, 500 workers or you know 2,000 workers become unemployed. What are you going to do about that? And um, and and I think what we also need to realizes that in an era of global capital, a single government becomes increasingly important um, to do much without, within the confines of the nation state. Uh, because you're trading with each other. If somebody else is, for example, producing products uh, more competitively while violating a lot of the you know, regulations that we would put into effect in, in our country, then, you know, and we allow those products here, then you know, how, how's it, how's it going to work? So these are, these are significant questions. Jennifer? So, yeah, since Kamal mentioned the global forces at play, I think that's important. And I think we need to recognize that we are talking about a system. You used the word system earlier, Michael, and we're talking about an economic system that is intertwined with social and cultural system that is intertwined in this complex global dynamic. And systems are interesting because their overall impacts, their overall unfolding is different from the sum of their individual parts. And they are in many ways nonlinear and less predictable. So we need to recognize that we are caught up in a system and therefore the fixes that might appear to be simple fixes or, or you know, a, a lever that can adjust one thing or another, taxation rates for what have you, have knock-on consequences and may not actually have the influence that we think that they will have. 
But picking up on what Kamal said about the global forces, I mean, I think we also need to recognize that the other aspect of this is to some degree a backlash to what um, market forces unleashed, which is that we have become a much more open society. We have much more open borders. Um, this is changing the nature of the workforce, even in the OECD countries. And this is changing the demands on businesses. And I think big businesses that recognize the opportunity here and that recognize that they need to be able to deliver products and services to more than you know, some small segment of the population um, are actually looking for ways to engage a workforce that is diverse, that can see that there might be an opportunity for them to enter and thrive and contribute to an organization. So it's not just the small and medium-sized businesses, but actually the larger businesses that recognize that they need to actually speak to consumers who are increasingly diverse, which might not mean inequality per se. Um, but I think that you see the large organizations um, being very concerned about how they're going to get the kind of creativity and innovation that other people can bring. I mean, it's shocking when you look back and think it was only relatively recently that, um, you know, that clinical trials started to be done on any people that were not white males. I mean, we, it's just amazing to think that our, our our um, products and services have been designed around a very narrow aspect of what consumers are and what, you know, what they need. Just on the, on the issue of, of, of sort of global capital, I mean, there's many issues we can look at to try and address inequality from education to the role of the welfare state and so on, uh, and, and access to opportunities. But part of that is raising tax revenue for redistribution. I mean, can we, can we tax mobile global capital or is the direction always going to be this sort of race to the bottom of cutting corporation taxes, which of course then puts the burden onto um, the workers, often not in income tax, but through indirect taxes, because the notion is that income tax has to go down or corporation taxes has to go down and therefore we get tax revenue through other ways. But can we tax multinational capital? Or we always got to accept that uh, it's going to be this un continual undercutting that uh, you've all referred to. So I think, I mean, that that is what uh, Piketty was also suggesting, that we impose some sort of a global uh, tax. And I agree with him in principle, in the sense that uh, it has to be some sort of a global uh, tax regime, you know, to rein the excesses of global capitalism in. And uh, because, like I said, you know, as as long as countries are competing with each other, um, this is not going to happen because, I mean, that is one of the things that we heard after, you know, the Brexit uh, referendum that, you know, from the Prime Minister, uh, you know, saying, suggesting that, you know, we are going to basically turn Britain into a bargain, you know, sort of basement tax haven to, to attract all the foreign direct investment here. And um, so if we, you know, if one country is going down that route and an increasing number of emerging markets also feel obliged to go down that route in order to attract uh, foreign direct investment, then it's not going to happen. I mean, for example, to pick up on the example that Jennifer gave on, uh, on um, basically medical trials, um, you know, that, that or uh, drug-related trials that happen in India and other places and so on. The level of that is actually going down as as the Indian government is making the regulations more stringent. So once again, it is back in Australia and New Zealand, and where you know there are still loopholes in in regulation. So you know, capital does find you know wherever the the rates of return are highest or wherever you know the regulation is a little weak. So the solution has to be global, but 
can we do it is a whole different question. There's a, there's a point, isn't there, also about not necessarily thinking about the tax in the global multinational themselves, but thinking about taxing the financial markets, you know, the kind of idea of the Tobin Robin tax or the yeah. Robin Hood tax, it's called. So clearly, or in my view, something needs to, things do need to change within, a, within how the financial markets work because their their power is so disproportionate. And so uh, sometimes when we're only talking about the big multinationals, perhaps we're missing a, a big point over here about financial regulation. I think the Tobin tax is a very important one because when it was first put forward, I think uh, even Tobin said this is not feasible. Mm. Uh, and the main issue was really to dampen volatility in markets. It wouldn't stop a financial crisis. But now it's become centre stage and actually now it is feasible. New technology will allow you to impose a Tobin tax. So I think the the technological advances do mean we may, may be able to have a Tobin tax. That wouldn't do that much about inequality, but would dampen volatility in financial markets. And it may mean that we can regulate much more effectively corporate taxes. Mm. So we don't perhaps, perhaps stop this sort of race to the bottom if, if that is a process. And there, I mean, there can be important things that, you know, very specific tax breaks for specific reasons can do to potentially help inequality. So when a country declares that it is open for business for semiconductor manufacturing, this creates a large number of you know, well-paying jobs. It feeds into um, a, an educational pipeline and it potentially has some spillover effects locally that can actually be important in terms of enriching how that particular um, uh, country, you know, the, 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 the type of jobs available in that area. Um, that said, the, the idea that there would then be a race to the bottom um, and that people could still get stuck in these kinds of jobs is is important. But I think the recognizing what and why and where um, is important. Could I, could I just move, move the topic on? And I'm conscious that colleagues have got lectures and seminars to give soon. Um, one of the important aspects of inequality is gender inequality. Uh, women occupy a narrow range of occupations or a narrow range of occupations than men. They are less likely to be in senior positions compared to men. And there's a persistent pay gap. Um, these are important topics, uh, particularly discussed in advance of the International Women's Day, uh, which is on Thursday, the 8th of March. Um, is gender inequality a problem? If so, what can we do about it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, gender equality continues to be a problem, even though we have made a lot of progress um, on that. And thanks to the struggles and, and the political and social movements that have been waged uh, to earn those uh, rights, um, wage disparity still exists. Uh, in fact, here we are about to, at Cambridge, we are about to release a report uh, soon on gender wage disparity. Uh, in the university. It's not only wage now, disparity, there's disparity in some of the uh, exam results as well that, oh, yes. for our students. So yes. there's and, many, and many aspects of gender inequality. I think, I mean, and that is that is what, I mean, if, if we start looking into, because I mean, one of my remits at uh, the university is race inclusion. Okay? And what I'm seeing, you know, in terms of race inclusion is very similar questions and excuses to what were raised with gender uh, disparity. For example, you know, it was said that, well, I mean, obviously they are in nursing, the women are in nursing and in teaching because those are the jobs that they prefer. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, they prefer flexible timings, um, you know, and then maternity leaves, you know, they complicate matters and so on. So we heard all that before, right? And so very similar things and not enough women in STEM. So now when you, when you ask somebody, you know, why don't you have somebody, 
BME uh, in a particular decision-making body and so well we tried but there aren't too many you know sort of around which is exactly the kind of things that was said about women that you know where is the woman who's ready to be a CEO right um, you know there are hardly any women who have the CEOs uh, CV and uh, and so on so you know I mean this is this is coming to repeat um, itself uh, but what what research shows is that you know this is not just uh, about CVs. This is about networks. You know which networks you're part of. This is about mentoring in organization. Who you know sort of gets mentored uh, by people at top and who doesn't. How comfortable are you with you know how comfortable is your boss with you? Can he tell you you know politically incorrect jokes? I mean can can he indulge in body humor? Sort of you know with you. So those those are the kind of things you know that actually make a difference. So I mean wherever women have been put in the CEO's position or on the board, other women have tended to rise through the ranks. So you know I mean I think it's it's fairly clear. Jennifer. The, um, well, I think the short answer is yes, there is absolutely gender inequality. Um, and Kamal spoke to gender inequality manifesting at the top. It is particularly uh, blatant in some industries that there's vastly underrepresented female representation and also non-white representation. Um, and there's lots of reasons to, to, you know, to talk about that. There's, there's, there are pipeline issues, but I think the fact that you know, for at least 35 years, we haven't actually been moving the dial very much on those pipeline issues. Um, I did an undergraduate degree in engineering. Um, at the time, I think it was about one in three women in the class. Um, I was contacted about 20 years later um, and told by my alma mater that, that there are now 35% women in engineering. What progress? And I said, actually that doesn't sound like progress to me. And I think if we look at business schools, we look at MBA numbers, um, you know, the top business schools are edging up to or just surpassed 40% women. Um, but two out of three undergraduates are awarded to women. Two out of three undergraduate degrees are now awarded to women. So there is something that is happening well before, well before the CEO's suite in terms of female representation. And then in terms of, of course, this notion of flexibility and you know, the conversation is and has to be around how do we enable all people to do their work but also live their lives. Um, but the complexity of women and family is still very real and that shows up very clearly in driving a gender pay gap that then persists. And potentially, as Kamal says, not just a pay gap but also an access, influence and opportunity to work on challenging projects um, that men might have at one stage in their career and women might have at a completely different stage in their career. So there are a whole lot of issues, again, tied together um, related to the, the gap issue. As you say, Jennifer, there are, there are a whole lot of issues, but it helps, you know, we start by kind of calling this out, that it really is a problem. And, uh, and that to me is, you know, we still actually do need to say that. As you say, in my lifetime, I think in many ways, the uh, situation of women has gone backwards, not forwards um, in, in all sorts of ways, particularly for young women. And I think as we go through our careers, we're at risk of thinking things have got better because we are now in more position, more powerful positions ourselves. And we're not exposed to what young, vulnerable women are still exposed to who are entering their careers. So I think we need to be really conscious of that, that when we think things may have improved. Um, but and, and I absolutely agree with Kamal's point that if we... Um, 
create spaces that are inclusive to women, uh, what happens is actually we're creating spaces, hopefully, um, that are not designed for middle class white young men. They're designed for everybody else. And uh, so that's what it's about. And our experience of this at the Centre for Social Innovation here at the school, so all of our programmes, our master's programmes and our entrepreneurs' programmes have more women than men on them. And um, we find that no matter what you do, you get young white men, right? There are loads of young white men. This is a business school. Um, but we can uh, attract everybody else and have really high BME representation, um, black minority ethnic representation, because we don't build it with a, 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 the, the traditional model in mind. And some of that is about um, language, literally being careful of the words we use. Um, and this is a business school and we use the word entrepreneur, which is a word I don't like, but it's very hard to avoid in what we do, but other words we do avoid. So we're very careful about that. We're really careful about role models as well. So about the speakers, panels, the lectures we use and so on and so forth. And um, as a result, we've been able to very successfully recruit diverse cohorts. And of course, all the entrepreneurs we work with know and have learned the value of diversity. So on their boards, they will have diversity, both gender diversity, and they'll be looking for ethnic diversity, but also, you know, kind of things like neurotypical or non-neurotypical diversity, other things that we know make businesses better. And so it's, um, again, the fact that we're not moving more quickly on that, we have to say, comes back to power structures and the fact that the people who are in positions of power benefit from things being as they are. And so for the rest of us, we just need to keep, you know, keep calling it out and keep moving forward. It's a long way to go. This is a very important topic, but unfortunately we are running out of time. I know colleagues have got to be lecturing in, in 10 minutes. So um, I'd like to thank the panelists today, Belinda, Jennifer and Kamal. Um, for those listening, if you want to contact us, um, we're on Twitter at CambridgeJBS or other social media and you can contact us through our website. Uh, thank you all for joining us and I hope you can join us next time.